Hello, I'm Pete Raby, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. With me today is Ed Williams, the CEO of Candy Kittens. On a mission to challenge the traditional perception of sweets, Candy Kittens have established themselves as a household name, having recently partnered with Brewdog to bring a new IPA to the market. Today, we're going to discuss how brands can disrupt in a crowded marketplace. Thank you for joining us today, Ed. From what I have read, you guys have had quite a unique start going back a few years now. So if you wouldn't mind for the listeners, just to describe that, first year was co-founder of Candy <laughs> Yeah, thanks for having me, Pete. I guess uh, it takes me back a little bit. We're actually celebrating 10 years this year, which is exciting, but we're a totally, totally different business now than we were in that year one and probably have been every year since we started. I think the first thing is total naivety, totally inexperienced, <laughs> no no food and drink experience, but actually no real business experience. We went into it blind and it was all about a sort of passion for doing something different and how can we take this category, people are all eating sweets, everybody's enjoying sweets, but why are they buying the brands they're buying? Just didn't make sense to us. Why is this 25-year-old girl that's just graduated from uni with us, one of our mates, why is she carrying Haribo in her bag? It's covered in a rocket ship and a little childish cartoon character, bad packaging, the sweets don't even taste that great. What are they doing? And, and a lot of that sort of sitting around scratching your head and then we thought, okay, there's an opportunity here. Let's go and do something different. And that first year was all about essentially trying to convince people, whether that's our parents, um, manufacturers, people that we could get to come and work with us, convincing people that we weren't completely nuts <laughs> and we were we were actually onto something. I think it's a brilliant place to start. And like all these things, I'm always fascinated by the process of something's inception. Like why it was the right time sounds like it came off that basis of it doesn't quite sit right with me, which is always a fun place to start. Was there, was there a lot of market research that was done before you decided now this is going to be a standalone business? Like there, there were so many people, and I think there's quite a lot of famous examples of people that have lots of great ideas, yeah. but they can literally never pull them into any kind of fruition. Uh, what did that journey look like? Yeah, so zero market research, <laughs> that's for sure. And um, I think the thing is, with, nobody was asking for a more expensive bag of sweets, which if you boil it down to the, uh, you know, the, the sort of fundamentals, no one was thinking, oh, I really want a more premium version of this. So it really needs <laughs> yeah. something different. And sometimes you've got to go with your gut, I think. And that's a, a big lesson from the early days was we knew best. Mm. And you've got to kind of back yourself and, and believe in that. Mm. There's a famous Henry Ford quote that we go back to quite a lot, which is if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have asked for faster horses. And obviously he went on to create the car and, and bring the automobile to life. And I think for us, you know, we, we haven't maybe done something as world changing as inventing the car, but we have totally transformed a category and now got some of the bigger guys in, in that world looking at us going, okay, maybe we should sort of take a few pages out of their book. Mm. And I think, yeah, you can spend too much time doing research sometimes. You've got to get on with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the things I was really looking forward to asking you about, because as you say, it's a 10-year anniversary tom um, tomorrow. And I think, I think one of the things that I adore the most with even stuff like the pandemic and stuff like anniversaries is that I'm a big fan of anything that really gives you a hard stop and makes you go, Ooh, where are we now and what do we want to be? And a 10-year anniversary yeah. is one of those seminal moments. Uh, 
Has the, the long-term aim or vision for Canny Kittens changed immeasurably since you started out? Because there's so, uh, I've seen in our business, in our growth over the last you know, 12, 13 years, that there's definitely been different chapters to the business where you have a realisation and then you look at how things are. Yeah. How, how's that long-term vision uh, remained the same or has that been something in evolution as well? I think it changes in that you refine and get clearer and probably tweak you know the bits around the edges. What's at the core has probably always been there. So in our office, we've got on one of the shelves in our meeting rooms, all of the packs we've ever had. And the very first pack we launched right through to the packs we're selling now. And you know, I wince and cringe a little bit at some of those first ones. I actually designed a lot of the first iterations of the packaging <laughs> myself. And it's totally different, right? And some of the things we're doing, the way we've named the flavors, different things we're using, ingredients, the the sort of product itself changed a lot. But actually, the word gourmet sweets is still there. And that's always been at the heart of what we're doing. How do we make sweets gourmet? And that was just the word we used to basically mean better, right? How do we make sweets better? And that is a, a really simple goal but one that's just kept us true all along. So when we started, we didn't know that we were going to be vegan. We didn't know we were going to be carbon neutral because in all honesty, they weren't things that meant anything to us at that point. But as you start digging into the industry and you go, wow, this is you know, full of a lot of not very nice stuff. How can we do it better? Mm-hmm. And keep coming back to that question. So that meant vegan because we could, meant being carbon neutral because we knew how and et cetera, et cetera, as you sort of go along. I absolutely adore the simplicity around that. And I think one of the... One of the toughest things as businesses grow and become more successful, and we're going to go on and talk about the wonderful partnerships that you've got with some UK leading household names in in the, in the retail space, is actually boiling it down to simple things again. Yeah. Is extremely easy to wander away from. And all of a sudden, you've got 19 strategies. Everyone doesn't know their priorities. Everyone's a bit misaligned. And all of a sudden, confusion rains down, and you don't maximize the potential of what you're actually going for. So, so, so true. I, th- I, I think that's a brilliant point. I'm going to ask you something which, I, to be honest, I'd hate to get the question myself because it's a tough one. Because <laughs> the reality, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, one of the toughest things, of course, and one of the things that I, well, well, I love speaking to entrepreneurs and love speaking to people that are doing growth businesses is because I don't feel like there's many days and certainly no weeks that go by without some significant learning going on, some, yeah. you know, some, some, some mindsets opened up or a different perspective that's gleaned. But knowing what you do now, those first few years of a startup, what would be the biggest things that you would have done differently? <laughs> I think the first one is, is probably the biggest lesson is patience. So everything takes a lot longer than, mm-hmm. than you want it to take. So giving yourself time to get it right, I think is important. You know, not, not beating yourself up that it should happen tomorrow. And even now I speak to people that may be just starting and they they show me some plans that are just far, far, far too impatient. <laughs> I think that's a big thing. Mm. Really simple things, I suppose, is that we probably let our, I don't know if it's ego or if it's just doing the things you think you should do as a business get in the way. So for example, we hired some lawyers that were really fancy, great recommendation, nice shiny offices in the center of London, give you a lovely bottle of water when you come in. But their bills nearly crippled us, right? So on a practical level, that almost put us out of business. Is there a cheaper way of doing things? Could you do it in a bit more of a sort of rough around the edges way? You don't need to kind of go swanky from day one. Mm -hmm. You don't need those kind of things because it's what you've seen in a film or what you see on (laughs) The Apprentice or whatever, right? You can do things in a bit more of a scrappy kind of way. Yeah. I think it's one of the, the big balancing acts of when you're going through that growth bit making sure that you're prepared enough for what the future growth looks like one but not being too far ahead of yourself so as you say you're just draining cash because yeah it's it's one of the one of those statistics that when i heard it a couple of weeks ago 
I could barely believe it, but then it, I think for any business leader or person where your finances have got to be in great shape, that when they did an analysis of 3,000 businesses that went into liquidation in the UK, 80% of them are profitable. Crazy, right? And that's just that comes back to that cash is king. And yeah, like, yeah. You know, I think when you've gone through those lessons and seen what close looks like, and we all had that moment in the pandemic going, oh my God, <laughs> is, is this going to have changed everything forever? Um, yeah. And I think everyone's a bit more aware now of that. In, yeah, in I think that. people are playing it a bit safer now, right? But I've, in those early days, I mean, that's a real practical thing. That bill took us probably three or four years to pay off for one simple sort of legal bit that we needed. But it's, I think doing things, being smart with your cash 100% and being more aware of it. It's, really easy to take your eye off the ball with that particularly as founders and entrepreneurs it probably naturally that isn't the thing that you want to spend your time thinking about one of the things that i liked in our first conversation it was the fact that i know that you're not here to make up the numbers to have a cute little shop <laughs> sending a few sweets to some some cornish um you know corner shops whatever it may be the reality is it'd be great for listeners to hear what the long-term aim of candy kittens is and also you mentioned the word patience there uh I haven't always been blessed with it, l- loads of that myself. And I know lots of entrepreneurs also are fairly similarly wired. I'd like to talk about how you attempt to manage the sanity aspect of when you've got something long-term and grandiose that you want to hit and the fact that you're not there yet. Do you, you, yeah, yeah. Well, bit of those. I'm sure if you went back and spoke to anyone in the Candy Kittens team, they'd probably tell you I'm not managing it at all because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm coming up with lots of mad ideas and probably being impatient day-to-day with stuff. I think you're right. We didn't set out to sort of launch slow and build we set out to be at the very top how do we go and knock haribo off their perch at tesco and if we can relentlessly work until we've done that in in my mind that's my sort of thing and i think you've got to you've got to sort of dream big but act small is the other thing okay so if you you've got a, a clear goal you can work towards that but acting small around it is the is the balance with it so the the managing then some of that insanity can work to your advantage because you don't necessarily want it to be all in straight lines and very understandable because then you might actually just become the big guys that you're trying to beat mm-hmm. you, you've got to get a, you've got to have a bit of that healthy insanity i think to make sure that you're still pushing boundaries you're still taking the risks and you're doing the stuff that people probably tell you isn't a good idea you know there's a if, you t- if everybody takes the same route, you come back to the same place. And I think that's what we're, we're trying not to do that. <laughs> I, I, again, uh, I, I had to admit to you terribly that I'm no no big sweet eater myself. But yeah. the thing I've been delighted about- we're working since, on it. <laughs> since speaking to myself, especially having been vegan for the last two and a half years, I should be fully on board, right? Yeah. But, the, but the reality is um, I've been staggered by, beautifully staggered by speaking to my staff who all know you, all gave me their favorite brand. And I'm like, wow, this is a business that on paper, in, in, you know, yeah. in terms of headcount, like, wow, this is still a relatively- relatively small thing but yet when i go through your achievements and where you're at i'm like well these guys have come an incredibly on an incredible journey in a very short space of time what achievements although it's not going to the grandiose level that you're aiming for long term what the achievements you're proudest of um, having hit so far personally the way i look at it is that we've really set the foundations so that that might seem a little bit sort of harsh on ourselves but the reality is the first three four maybe five years of the business was totally about proving ourselves, proving that we could do it, that the concept was needed, that consumers would care, people would pay that much for a bag of sweets or whatever it was, um, and and change in the way that retailers and consumers bought sweets. So that was first thing, and we, we did that successfully. So that's where you get your 
uh, distribution in all the top retailers in the country and et cetera, et cetera. Then once you're on the shelf, you've got to work out how to sell it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how it keeps people coming back. And that's the second thing. And we've started to do that now and we've got a loyal kind of consumer base. And you move, you start to move out of that startup and into scale up. And I think we're just on that sort of precipice at the moment where we're starting now to think more about scale. We know what we do works and we know how to do it. Now we've just got to do that at volume. So you've got to, it's a, it's a high volume game. We've got to be selling big, big quantities of this stuff. So we've opened the doors. We've got where we want to be. Now we've got to make it work. I'm going to talk and want to come back to, to talk about the brand and talk about all of those super exciting bits and pieces because it does sound like there's a, a new chapter that you guys are in that is going to be that thing of like, yeah i hope so can we get it to that level of scale absolutely but one of the things you mentioned there that i've got to come back to because uh, again with our experience of going from three of us to 230 people is that kind of thing of right the thing that i recognize now when we were smaller uh, you know often i don't know why it's the analogy but it is it's the when you're a, a larger business making any changes, it's like a huge tanker ship. Yeah. Any significant change is going to take much longer to be able to turn it into the direction you want. When you're small and you've got that a, a, a ability to be a tugboat and you can change direction at pretty yeah. rapid speed, it's a wonderful thing. But yet there's clearly a benefit to be had by knowing and acting in a corporate manner from an early stage. Using the, you know, although the, the crippling cost of very expensive lawyers is not the example having the right partners and doing some things in a corporate way early doors is going to set your foundations up to be very very strong yeah how have you how have you guys gone about trying to manage that blend because it ain't easy right really really difficult and i think that it's that it, to me it's sort of a when people talk about kind of fake it till you make it i think you have to go out and pretend and be a bigger brand than you are so from the day one when we're, we're presenting to a retailer, we're presenting a really polished, beautiful pitch deck, which, okay, lots of startups maybe can do the same thing. But then we're sending our samples in a really nice branded case with branded tape, branded stickers, and really over-invest in, in reality, in the things that make you look like you're a business that's been there forever and you're a business that's can they can really trust and buy into. Mm. So that was one thing. And I think then on a sort of internal level, we were very, very lucky that Jamie, um, who I started the business with, his stepdad has been a, a great kind of influence on the business. He's, he's still the chairman of the business today um, and has been a massive mentor to Jamie and I in that he brings a corporate finance background to a very, very small dynamic, that sort of speedboat versus the tanker kind of analogy. That's us, but he's got this background of corporate governance, public companies, and making sure that every meeting we attend has an agenda, every meeting has minutes. When we present our numbers, we can present them in a kind of bulletproof way. So I think often people have probably been surprised when we pitch to a retailer or an investor or maybe hire some big, some big sort of executive level hires. People look at that and go, wow, okay, I didn't expect them to have mm. all their ducks in a row quite like they have because the common place in a startup is to be probably a little bit chaotic and frantic and disorganized so it's trying to merge the two worlds you want to you don't want to lose the energy and all the creativity that comes with that young team we're a very young team but overlay in a sense of get your shit together get the house in order first then allows you to go and have fun afterwards i think i'm really looking forward to speaking about about the brand and the explosion of the brand and actually one of the things you mentioned there which really struck a chord is the world of celebrity for businesses can be a wonderful thing in terms of exposure, in terms of getting your yeah, name out there. For sure. But yeah, I think 
there's absolutely the flip side of the coin that how much does big business care about that? Yeah. Not too much. They care about how well is your business run? How is it put together? And actually, sometimes I'd imagine that someone with celebrity connection probably has to do a lot harder work to be able to be taken seriously. Is this just a, a pet Absolutely. project of someone that's in the public eye, or is this a business that's run properly that we're involved, interested in getting involved in partnering up with in bits and pieces? So, I, yeah, that, that's an interesting. It's probably angle. one of the bigger. That that is probably the number one sort of double edged sword that we've had to deal with, right, as we've grown the business. And I think Jamie. Uh, when I met him, had just started out on Made in Chelsea, which created this unbelievable platform from which to launch a brand. Incredible viewing statistics, great social media, etc. And that's brilliant. But then the other problem with that, as you rightly point out, is that people go, well, he's just a guy off the TV. It's a flash in the pan. Okay, he's obviously got money because the whole story of him on TV was about family background, etc. So it kind of creates a, an illusion that we didn't really want to be selling as well. So we've had to battle that and you have to prove to people, why is this something that's going to stay, stick around? Mm. And really, if you pitch into the higher levels in business, they couldn't care whether you're on Made in Chelsea or you're the Queen of England. It, to them, is it does the business stack up. And that's something we've had to work really, really hard to show people that it does. Never put his name on the packaging, never put photos of him anywhere near it. Always, always from day one deliberately made them as two separate brands and it can stand on its own and either or could cut the other one loose at nice. any point. Do you know what? I think it's one of those things that's really, really good to speak about because lots of people will just have big assumptions of, of one way. Oh, it's just that was whatever it may be. But yeah. I think it's kind of quite good there to make people aware of it. massive assumptions, right? And people, the whole thing, particularly with Jamie's case, I can't speak for every celebrity-backed brand, but in Jamie's case particularly, he was on a show that was about rich kids driving around in Ferraris drinking champagne. And actually, I've never seen his Ferrari and he doesn't drink a lot of champagne. And I can tell you for, for a fact that there wasn't loads of money flying around. We, like anybody else, had to, to really beg, steal and borrow to get the thing going. So the show and the creativity behind that show sort of was nice in that it set that premium level that helped the brand. Mm. But actually, it also it gave a lot of the wrong assumptions to people that we perhaps didn't want to maybe think like that. Nice. It's really good to learn that. It absolutely. Now, one of the things, as I mentioned in, in, in I, I want to speak about Fritz Kohler in Germany, actually momentarily, because <laughs> we were over, I was over there recently. And I think what you're trying to do when you mention a beast like Haribo, yeah, there'll be some people that the eyebrows be raised going, Are you sure? Yeah. But I think the Fritz example in Germany is a really good one. Two brothers effectively who wanted to be bigger than Coca-Cola in Germany and have absolutely achieved to do so. Their branding is very particular. And one of the things that I love when I was reading up about you and the story so far has been uh, that quote from you is, it's all about being as loud and challenging as possible. And what I'd be interested to know, <laughs> especially like the Fritz example, and like you, you, you mentioned a couple of things branding related already, what makes a brand loud and challenging? Yeah, I mean, I think Fritz is an awesome example. And I think a, a sign of the times in that people want to buy from people and they want to know the story behind it. So... How do we be loud and challenging, I think, is about telling that story. Where do we come from? What do we want to do? Why are we doing it? That's you, you really got to believe that if you're going to buy the product, I think. And then I think it just comes down to doing anything that they won't do. And by that, I mean they being the competitors, right? So if, if Haribo want to do something, we absolutely do the, the other thing, the opposite thing to yeah. that. And perhaps taking risks and not being afraid to ruffle feathers, right? So we're... The challenge as we grow the business is making sure that the people we hire are willing to take those same risks. So you bring people into the business now because they have worked in marketing at somewhere brilliant like Mars. So they bring all these new ideas, which is awesome. But they say, oh, we can't do that because if we say that, we're going to offend 
that person I used to work with and their lawyer's really good. I know that because we've got to run in with them in the past. So they're going to come down on you. And you just have to say, well, we don't care. We're going to go for it. And actually, if it isn't offending someone, then maybe we're not we're not pushing hard enough. Let's talk about that momentarily, right? So being loud to be disruptive is yeah. one of those phrases that I'm like, you're in a space that's been dominated by some really big players for a really long time. There's a lot of arguments to say, chaps, just find something else to put your time yeah, into, yeah. right? But like... Would you say that you would need to be allowed to be disruptive in a space and kind of really do things in a new and challenging way? Because that's easier said than done, right? I think you can be loud without being disruptive, number one. Yeah. So you could you could go and put uh, an advert on every bus in London. That's quite loud. But in that's that advert's telling you something eye-catching, interesting. It's very easy to ignore it. And I think you can also be very disruptive that then gets you that volume. Um, so if the idea itself is disruptive enough, people will stop and talk about that. And I think that's our aim is how how can you be disruptive in order to earn a level of volume that we probably couldn't afford? So if we can't afford to wrap every bus in London, yeah, then how else do we get the equivalent kind of reach? And that's by doing things that people sort of go, what, why the hell have they launched a beer with Brewdog? What is that? Why would you do that? Yeah. And And I think it's that kind of thing then that, is disruptive to get volume. Well, that's one of the examples that I was definitely expecting to hear about because, as you say, maybe that's not the most natural marriage that, that people would no, eventually think about. But again, kind of the point you were making before, we don't want to be in the same space as everyone all the time. On your journey to being partnered with some of the, well, with the biggest retailers in the UK, which is, yeah. you, as I thought you may do, classically understated in relation <laughs> to that small achievement. It's an unbelievably competitive marketplace and I've seen plenty of programs over the years of brands fighting, toiling, trying to get their products into yep. these supermarkets in particular. What promotional tactics have you found to be the most impactful on this journey to disrupting the market to get in with these supermarkets? Have there been any particular tactics that have worked very well? I think the first reason people fail, to maybe answer, approach it a slightly different way, first reason people fail is that they they've convinced themselves that the supermarket needs what they're selling. And I think we've always taken the approach that we're going to get a no. So if we're going to get a no and they don't want to meet us, they don't want to take the product and they don't like it, how do you, from the outset, convince them to do that? So we've done loads of tactical things where you send crazy, I don't know, six-foot-tall boxes with just one bag of sweets in the bottom of that. So the whole office is gathered around going, what the hell is this? And we open it up and it's just one bag of sweets and then a message from us or something. You know, stunt-type activities that just get you noticed yeah. and I think you've really got to think about that well how do we really give someone a reason to to talk to us yeah. so you've got to fight for every every last conversation it was how we did that in the early days um, that comes back that comes back a little bit to uh, something I agree with totally of um, entirely unfair perception of the modern generation yeah. that is life owes me a living yeah. and I think being in that wonderful uh, beginning mindset for anyone of going no this they do not need me yeah what, what, what am i going to bring to the table that's going to yeah be a value add for something i think it's one of the absolutely. things that actually bizarrely in in the last 18 months of conversations that hasn't been something that's come up before it so i'm, I, I'm pleased we've yeah, covered that. you've got to really work for it i think and i think that there's a lot of people that go into it thinking well i've got the best i don't know what it might be I, i've got the best sausage <laughs> that anybody makes yeah. and, you, and you might do but why do they want to buy that and then i think you've got to really think about how you create something a bit more different and a bit special um why does it deserve a space so that's a big part of it for us um promotional things that we've done i suppose is the biggest way we've launched the brand is through social media so having a voice through social media before we um, even had a brand and sharing the development of the brand and that whole journey in the early years 
was was quite brave, I think, to, in hindsight. Looks smart looking back, but it was probably more stupidity at that time. We were opening pop-up shops. We were running events. We didn't even have a single suite. So we would say, we're opening a shop in on the King's Road in Chelsea. And 20,000 people would come down based just on a Twitter account and would all queue up and expect to be buying sweets when they got in there. But we had no sweets at all. And they'd come in and say, well, I thought you were a sweet brand. Oh, well, sorry, the sweets aren't quite ready yet, but we've got some smoothies in the flavours of what the sweets are going to be. Do you want to try them and tell us which flavours you like? And then we're going to go and make those sweets. And if you sign up to the email, you'll be part of that and we'll give you, et cetera, et cetera. So by the time the sweets actually landed, we'd opened 30, 35 pop-up shops in every city in the UK um, and had a massively engaged social and email audience that we were then able to convert into instant consumers. So that again, sounds like a smart marketing strategy, right? That you'd probably pay an agency a lot of money for today. But actually, that at the time was just out of necessity of, okay, we've got to do something. Sweets aren't ready for it 24 months yet. What do we do? Um, we sold t-shirts with the brand on, pencil cases with the brand on, pajamas, smoothies. I mean, everything, anything you could slap a logo on, we did it. Yeah, nice. Um, yeah, some great examples there. And as you say, some of the stuff might slightly be by the seat of the pants, but actually- in the, in A lot the, of it. <laughs> as, as the journey goes, it's ended up okay. Um one of the things that I always think is interesting, I talk about a lot, you can have all the writing over the walls that you want in relation to your branding or like what you want something to be, but what you actually do culturally yeah. uh, isn't always as straightforward as getting those two things aligned. So I'd be fascinated to hear how your internal culture aligns to the disruptive nature of the Candy Kittens brand and what things you make sure that you uh, always have within your culture to do just that. So I think... In the early days, again, to go back to that, we spent no time thinking about culture because you kind of have this just head down, get on with it and hope that everybody just follows you. And as we've grown, we've realized that we have a real responsibility to make, to build that culture, I suppose, and make everybody aware of why we're doing what we're doing. So we're putting so much more energy into that now than we ever have before. And I think it's also in a better place than it's ever been because we made a lot of mistakes going back in the years of neglecting that and just assuming people were with us we did lots of different things i think the big thing is about spending time together as a team which has obviously been challenging for everybody over the last couple of years but as we move back to face to face we're really enjoying getting together as a team we do it as much as we can at least once a week and that's working really really well we also try and get as much outside influence into the business as possible. So I don't think people want to listen to me or Jamie or our other leaders wang on all the time, endlessly telling what telling them what I want to tell them. Um, so this morning, as an example, we had somebody come in from another brilliant business. It's just a, a water company that's just launched and tell their story, how they launched the business, what they're doing, what the challenges are. And just trying to open people's eyes to the to the outside world. Take the blinkers off for a minute. It's not all about candy kittens. Look what other people are doing elsewhere and what can we learn from that? And as business leaders, I suppose we're constantly doing that. And I'm sort of incentivized, I suppose, to, to teach myself and understand what's going on and listen to podcasts or read a business book or whatever it might be to, to influence my decisions. But giving the team access to that as well, I think has been a really a big, big sort of change maker for us. And Every time we have a guest, which is every Thursday morning, we, without fail, have at least one new idea in the business that then sort of goes somewhere. And it might be something small about how we decorate the office, or it might be something massive about a new product that we launch. So, yeah. I was going to ask, uh, for a business that specifically tries to be disruptive and think about new ideas, how you make sure internally that you have that creative process yeah. 
in place and it's not just a case of like it's all on the founders like well what are we doing next but actually have a very much trying to give that autonomy right so everybody i want everyone to feel like they're part of that business everybody feels that they they're spending their money and they're earning their money and and really connecting all those dots because i think a lot of the time there's a a big big disconnection between i work and i get paid to that's what this business needs thinking about that business as its Mm. own entity Mm. rather than just the thing that we work for this kind of whatever you know something that just pays the bills you need to really feel it and understand it and we're trying to be as open and honest with everybody about the challenges the the struggles the pinch points whatever it may be bring everyone with us a lot if you can i'd be fascinated to hear because uh, we're in a very similar guise in the sense that international expansion can always look extremely uh, <laughs> extremely seductive in lots of ways yeah. you kind of you you know the vast we've used the fritz Kohler example but uh when you know there's western society that kind of operates in very similar ways like yeah. people like sweets typically it's very easy to want to get into these places and run before you can walk so to speak yeah have there been some key international learns that you've taken away so far yeah i think so i think that is a massive misconception that if you can sell sweets in the uk you can sell them in other other countries we the biggest example probably is is the us and i think the us for loads of different industries is the sort of holy grail of if you can crack america um then you've done it and i think there's truth in that and i think the reason why it's this big big prize is because it's very 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 difficult and it's something that not many people probably can do um we assume that they they speak like us, they look like us, they, they they behave like us. Therefore, it's just pick up what we've done in the UK and drop it in the US and it'll be fine. But actually, you've got to, you've got to start again. You've got to basically launch as an American business, I think. So we had a, a nationwide listing with Walmart, which, you know, you feel like that's the sort of stuff that you kind of dream of and you think, well, how the hell did we get that? It sort of all falls into place and a bit of a pinch yourself moment. But then making that work is very, very difficult when you've done absolutely zero to build the brand in that country or in those states. Everything, all that goodwill with consumers and all that brand equity that you've built up in the UK just does not exist there. So you, you're really starting again. And I think it's quite difficult as a brand, particularly at our size, to have the the courage to go back to the beginning again mm. and, and sort of start at that very, very ground zero and work your way up. So. We will revisit the US, I think, at some point later. But for now, we've, we've sort of really, really learned our lessons and brought it all back to the UK. We can we can grow this business probably by another 20, 30, 40 times in the UK. So why it's sort of like running a marathon and doing 10 miles and then going, oh, hang on, let's just turn around and start running another one. Finish that marathon, then go and do the next one. Um, and I think that's kind of where we are at the moment. We think we see that as the as the focus back in the UK and keep going. Start finish what we started. I've got a depressingly big birthday coming up this year, <laughs> and one of the only things that I've said as a positive for such a big birthday is the fact that I think great confidence can be gleaned from the experience that you've gone through over the last ten plus years of yep. great creating and growing a business. And actually, you now know what you didn't know five years ago, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, yeah. Which is one of the small elements of comfort you can get from having <laughs> such a birthday right <laughs> but one of the things uh, i'm going to be following canny kittens with great interest after this because i think a lot of what you say is uh yeah is is extremely interesting and i agree with it enormously i think the things that have come across from our conversation i want to ask you in relation to 
your biggest leadership kind of uh, core values that you look to stick, you know, the kind of any, any leaders that you respect and follow bits and pieces. But when you blend authenticity with humbleness and when you really also encourage external looking, when you link that all back to a big, grandiose long-term aim, I think hopefully that's how something special can be created. But in terms of Canny Kitten's journey now, is there one big thing, laser focus that's getting your you know, you and the other founders and the other, you know, the other leaders' attention that you're focused on right now. I think probably for us, it's it's that UK piece. So growing in the UK and really maximising what we've started. So it's it doesn't sound particularly pretty or sexy, but actually it's about specific retailers. And if you look at a retailer where we've got perhaps uh, 500 stores, but maybe that retailer has X thousand stores. You say, okay, well, how do we turn 500 into X thousand? Mm. And and that one thing, if you get really, really kind of double down on that one thing, that could change the business overnight. Um, mm. And I think we're trying to sort of pick off those targets now at this stage. That's the kind of, that's the focus, if we can do that. No, I adore it. And I think it's, um, yeah, part of the journey I've been on over the last couple of years since getting this job has been, um, it's been the reality of you can try and do 20 things. And yeah, you might get there in five years and you might yeah, do them yeah. all okay. But the reality is you pick one or two of the most impactful things, set yourself timescales and say, where do we want to be? Like, I, I'm fascinated by, I'd imagine the biggest challenge is like whew, getting in with these retailers. Yeah, that was a big challenge. But guess what? We're now in there. How do we maximize these relationships to not just be in five? Well, this is it, right? So yeah. when to get into a retailer, right, you, you, you need to sell to one person. And if you back yourself to sell properly, you can go and sell to one guy one-on-one and you can get your listing with with Tesco. But once you're in Tesco, you need then hundreds of thousands of people to be buying the product every month. And that's a much, much bigger ask. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a scale game for sure. And I think that focus is key. The, the trouble we've got is that we're passionate about the brand and have so many ideas <laughs> coming our way all the time that you can very easily slip back into doing those 20 things. And you've got to constantly keep mm-hmm. it back to less. We, we've, we have a... Um, we're partnered with a German business that were also our manufacturers, but sit on our board. And they have, in a very typically German mindset, a very, very good way of simplifying and getting directly to the point. And they say, well, if you, what's your priority this month? We might present three priorities. And they say, no, priority means one. How can you have one priority? Mm-hmm. And, and that's been a, a bit of a change, I think, in the way we think as well, that influence of really bring it back to one thing. Love it. Love anything with simplicity and that uh, absolutely is <laughs> nail on the head there, Ed, for sure. Um, on to some some kind of quick fire final questions. It's been a really great conversation today. Um, what, you mentioned a couple already, Ed. Um, what have you found to be the most effective personal development methodologies to use to kind of grow and develop as a leader? I think I, le- I learn a lot by doing. <laughs> so I think getting yeah. getting my hands dirty, spending as much time actually doing every single part of the business. So from the, you know, the early days, we didn't have a team, so you had to do it all. But now even as we add new things, trying to understand the, the tools and the nuts and bolts of every little bit. I read the odd book. I don't read lots, but I listen to lots of podcasts as well. I think there was a book um, by Philip Knight who founded Nike called Shoe Dog um, that really, really inspired me a few years ago. Um, love that. And I think now stepping away from the business stuff, it can be just as inspiring. I think it's those bits in between the, th- the times where you think you're learning is where the ideas come to me most. So mm. taking breaks is also pr- pretty important now and having that holiday or family time, whatever. Mm. I always find that if I come back after a break, I'm a much, much better person than I was 
the two weeks previously or whatever it might be. I describe it all the time as that you didn't realise that you were running at 70%, but the reality yep. is that you were if you go too long without a break. And yep. I was up a mountain with a buddy of mine up in the Lake District a couple of weeks ago. You Up and down in two hours up a mountain. But just <laughs> having that space, coming down and just up right on the phone, emailing yeah, out, just yeah, an yeah. absolute splurge of ideas just off the basis of doing things. And just taking a bit of his time of away, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Um, you mentioned um, Shoe Dog, I agree, an absolutely awesome book and some really surprising things in there, I thought, as well. Um, I don't know if the High Performance Podcast with Jake Humphries is ever one of your listening ones. Yeah, I have but, listened to that, yeah. Um, Greg Hoffman, the, uh, the Nike CMO for 20-odd years, went on to that. And for anyone that hasn't listened to that, it was interesting branding and all those things, storytelling-related I think Greg's probably got a book out too. I don't work for Greg, but uh, so so uh, so so um, so impressed I was by that podcast. That's well worth a listen for anyone that yeah, that, fantastic. That I checked that one out. Um, uh, is there, you mentioned that book there before, um, which is, which is great. And uh, uh, I think um, the final thing I'd love to ask it is uh, if there's anything for people listening, be it entrepreneurial related or leadership related or brand related, that you'd want them to take away uh, uh, from our conversation today. What would that one thing be? I think just be patient. It, it takes a long, long time. And I think too many people go into these things thinking that you can have that overnight success. But we all know that <laughs> it's no such thing. Ed, it's been absolutely awesome having you on. Thank you so much for joining me today. And um, anyone who's enjoyed the uh, episode, please give a five-star rating. Uh, thanks again, Ed, for Thank coming. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Nice Thanks. One.